You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams? What I know to be true is that women were always meant to lead. And by shining a light on those doing it well today, my hope is that more women will be inspired to use their own voice. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and thanks so much for being with me for another week of Women to Watch. It's great to be back. Um, I think I'm beginning to see a light at the end of this long, dark tunnel, and I hope you are as well. Joining me in just a moment is Mandy Price, and Mandy is the co-founder and CEO of Canaries, which is a pioneering company, I'll say, within the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, and she's garnered a lot of well-earned media attention lately, and she has a great story. She'll be with me in just a moment. As you know, when we go into our breaks, you hear uh, segments from our watch team, who are all women leaders within their organizations, and we are always looking for more women to join the show. So if you're interested in learning more, please feel free to reach out to me at susan at womentowatch.net. We have openings in both our Philadelphia and New York market right now and reaching thousands of listeners and growing. So it's really exciting. As always, uh, please visit our website at womentowatch.net to sign up for the podcast and our newsletter and see who's coming up next on the show. So now I am honored and thrilled to welcome again, Mandy Price, co-founder and CEO of Canaries. Mandy, welcome to the show. Hi, Sue. Glad to talk with you today. It's great to have you. And uh, just so our listeners know, you you are joining us from Texas, and maybe you can just give them a little update on on how you're doing and how things are there. We've all been watching closely. Yeah, so I'm calling in from Dallas, and uh, 
we are beginning to see things return to normal. Um, there are still lots of individuals without uh, water. Uh, and I, I know that many of the Canaries team members, as well as many of my family members, struggled through uh, not having power for days and uh, lack of water. And now uh, we are starting to deal with the um, burst pipes and things like that that mm-hmm. are, are now being able to be cleaned up within the various residences. So uh, grateful for all the support that we've had. Um, we've had lots of colleagues and team members and clients reach out to us and uh, grateful for that support. Great. I'm so I'm so happy to hear that. Um, so listen, I want to talk a little bit about your upbringing, which which is also in Texas. Um, I understand you grew up in DeSoto, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. Tell me a little bit about what that community was like. Yeah, sure. So growing up, I was one of the only black students in my kindergarten. There was, I was the only person in my class, but when I say kindergarten, I mean the entire grade. So there was one other student uh, that was a black student. And so our, our, our demographics of our elementary school by far were predominantly white. And like most uh, suburbs, uh, we started to experience white flight. So by the time I graduated from high school, the demographics of, of my school district had changed dramatically, and it was roughly 50% black by the time I graduated, which was many years ago. And now when you look at the school district, it is predominantly black. And so um, I think uh, those experiences of going through that period of white flight um, obviously developed who I am as a person in my background uh, and ultimately some of those experiences having to address and deal with racist issues very early on ultimately uh, helped to give me a lot of insight into uh, diversity equity inclusion issues and, and lead to the, the, the formation of Canaries. So I know that your your parents spoke pretty openly and transparently with you as, as a child about racism. What did what did they say to you about it? What was their what were their thoughts that they shared with you? Well, I think most black parents have to um, make sure that their children are given the skills that they need to survive and succeed in the world. So, oh, you know, most black parents have these discussions with their with their kids and um, so that they know how to navigate the world. So some of the things, you know, as a child, I was uh, presenting to them some of the challenges that I was experiencing with with teachers, with my fellow uh, students. I remember that a lot of the classmates that I grew up with had started over time to make questions about race, you know, um, the kind of when you look at the school and the demographics as it changed, people started to make statements like, it seems so dangerous here now, or, you know, I don't feel safe. And so I would go back and and talk to my parents about those issues where I would say, well, we haven't had any increase in, in violence or things like this. Why are people saying that? And so, you know, it's very clear that those perceptions came just because the demographics of that, of the school had changed and, and people equate certain um, people of different demographics with, with criminality and things of that nature. So I think early on, uh, it was very clear to me the way uh, people are otherized and grouped. Uh, And so we have to ensure that we don't have that kind of bias uh, that is sometimes unintentional. Uh, Sometimes it is intentional, uh, really being used to drive decisions. You know, um, I think about 
children and how, um, you know, at a certain age, they, they truly don't see color, right? They have their friends and, and everyone is just the same. And then all of a sudden they reach a certain age and things change. I'm curious to ask you, you know, being, you know, one of only two in your classroom um, to be black, how, you know, what was your friend group like? And at what age did you kind of start to notice that there was this bias happening? So I think people notice when they're not being treated the same or people are treating them differently or, you know, so they may not know the reasons why behind that, but they people are very cognizant of the way they're being treated. And I'm sure we can all relate to the idea of being in a room and feeling different or feeling like um, you weren't included or feeling like you didn't belong. So um, I can't put my finger on the exact moment, but growing up, I definitely had a consciousness of um, me uh, being on the fringes and in, like I said, the statements that classmates made around uh, uh, othering. <laughs> you know, I can't think of another way to, to put it besides othering. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's a great way to say it, actually. Yeah. But, but um, as, you know, time grew on and I became... Uh, you know, more mature in different settings. I obviously can point to incidences there, Um, many incidences in the workplace. Same thing, you know, I know we talked about um, kind of my awareness of some of these issues in childhood, but I would say when I really started becoming aware of of a lot of these issues uh, was when I was in college. Um, And um, I went to the University of Texas at Austin, great institution, had a great experience there. But again, I think my experience is like the experience of most black Americans where there's lots and lots of positive, but there's lots of incidences that you can point to to say, I wish we could be better, right? Mm. I wish we could yes. do better. Yes. And uh, when I was at the university, uh, there was lots of racial incidents. Uh, the MLK statue got uh, egged. Uh, we were one of the first institutions, right, besides um, uh, where uh, Dr. King graduated from uh, uh, Morehouse to actually have an, an MLK statute. So we were really, really proud of that as a university because it was something that the students championed for a long time. But within months of the statute going up, it got egged. Uh, it, during the university, there was a lot of blackface parties or, or, or Halloween parties, right, where people are doing things um, that are, are, are very racially insensitive. And then there was uh, kind of the culmination of uh, black students being asked on campus uh, to prove that they were a student and to show their ID. And so the president uh, of the university at the time, President Faulkner, put together a task force, a racial respect and fairness task force. And I was one of the four student representatives. And so um, did a lot of work, even as a student, right, around these diversity, equity, inclusion uh, issues. That continued on uh, when I went to law school, went to Harvard Law School and did work there at the Harvard Civil Rights Project as well regarding uh research and work around uh, the school to prison pipeline and other structural uh, issues that need to be changed in order to ensure uh, that we're, we aren't um, funneling people into the, the prison system, which unfortunately is the way a lot of uh, the, the way the education systems are working in the school resource officers and when they're being brought in for, for such minor infractions. So when we talk about uh, kind of social impact work, especially through this diversity, equity, and inclusion lens, it's 
it's work that I've done um, throughout my life. And, you know, Mandy, I would say that um, it seems to me, I, I read a, a quote you, you said, I, I just felt compelled to do something. It was a core calling. And I wonder how much of that came from um, your parents. Your mom was a social worker and your dad was a firefighter. So these were people that were helping in the community that you live in. So what a great example you had in really seeing them in action helping how much do you think was just really that core calling and how much do you think was came from what your mom and dad did in life? I think it's both, right? I think that we all have things that are deep desires and innate things that are, are within us to do. But I also think it's the nurturing that your parents and that your community and society gives you. And so uh, my family always taught me very early on that we are the ones that create change within our society. That if we see something that is not right, or we see someone, you know, even as simple as my mom sitting in the school lunch cafeteria by themselves, it's on you to go and speak up for that person or to ask them to your table. And so I never viewed that this was someone else's job or responsibility. It was always, um, it's, in, it's up on all of us to make the change that we want to see within society. Exactly. Um, if you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with Mandy Price, the co-founder and CEO of Canaries. Um, so you mentioned Harvard Law School and you did graduate, um, practiced over 12 years before leaving uh, to co-found Canaries. T can you talk about, you know, what was the catalyst for your decision? Do you remember a moment where you made that decision to, to start a company rather than continuing your law career? Yeah, so when I started to have children, um, I started to not necessarily think about these issues differently, but started to think about what type of workplace did I want them to go into. Um, I felt that so much of our conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, were around how to navigate the system, right? And so I, I was a part of a lot of leadership development and training programs for either women or people of color. And the programs were all about how to navigate a system that we knew were broken um, in the sense of, uh, you know, talk like this. You need a sponsor, dress like this. It was all these kind of actions that you needed to take. Um, but there was not a lot of discussions of, well, is there something fundamentally wrong with our systems? Do we need to really talk about the fact that if we know that women are not ascending the ladder, if we know that this pay parity exists, um, why are we not talking about the structural things that need to change? Because individual interventions and behaviors are only going to get us so far that we really have to approach it from an institutional lens. And we know that only through changing the structures and the systems uh, in the way organizations start to think about their talent acquisition systems their performance management systems, the way pay is done through their organization, are we going to actually achieve that large-scale change? You know, Mandy, one of the things I think often about um, when, around this topic is how much of is it um, systems and, you know, historical um, culture, and how much is it the hearts of people? 
right? So in other words, what you're doing is very, very actionable from the standpoint of um, providing companies with really insightful data um, that they're getting directly from their employees. But then there's this whole other side of how do we change the hearts of people who still have um, these these biases and, and these opinions not opinions, but, you know, these perceptions at a deeper level. And I, I'd love to talk about that when we come back. We, we have to go into our first break, and I'd love your take on that when we come back. This evening, again, I'm speaking with Mandy Price, the co-founder and CEO of Canaries. Stay with us for our Watch Team segment, and we'll be right back. Now, the women to watch, Health Watch. For HealthWatch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. February, Heart Month, reminding us that heart disease is the most common cause of death in U.S. adults, including women. Sadly, many women are not aware of the magnitude of this risk. This morning on Your Radio Doctor, we heard from Yale cardiologist Dr. Lisa Freed. A study in circulation last May showed that over a 10-year period ending in 2019, awareness that heart disease is the number one cause of death in women dropped from 65% to 44%. Many identify breast cancer as a leading cause of death, especially younger women. In fact, heart disease claims seven times as many lives as breast cancer in women. Also, women often think it's a man's disease. These statistics renew our drive to promote prevention. Since 2004, the American Heart Association has continued Go Red for Women campaign and with educational events across the country. Women are less likely to think symptoms reflect heart disease and more likely to wait before seeking medical attention. Typical symptoms, the Hollywood heart attack, chest pain or pressure in mid-chest, radiation into neck or left arm, shortness of breath, sweating, nausea, vomiting. Atypical symptoms, shortness of breath or nausea, vomiting without chest pain or just extreme fatigue. In women, chest pain often occurs with stress or at rest, even during sleep rather than exertion. Atypical symptoms are more often in women, but chest pain is still the most common in both men and women. Having symptoms? Call 911 and chew four baby aspirin while you wait. Risk factors we can't change, age, men over 45, women over 55, a family history of early heart disease in men under 50 or women under 60, but you can aim to have blood pressure under 130 over 80. Remember, excess salt is riskier after menopause. Diabetes increases heart attack and stroke more in women than men, and smoking in women increases risk two to four times, even with one or two cigarettes a day. Risk also increases with menstrual periods that begin at a younger age, and events in pregnancy like hypertension, diabetes, premature birth before 37 weeks, or multiple miscarriages. Have a heart, divas. Learn CPR. It saves lives. Now the women to watch. Legal Watch. This is Nicole Hitner at Ballard Spar for your Legal Watch. Last week, I talked about the filing by the New York State Attorney General against Amazon for alleged violations of health and safety requirements under the new COVID regulations. But New York's not alone. In the month of February, 1,717 COVID-19 employment lawsuits were filed across the country. The most common case type relates to remote work and leave conflicts. There are steps that companies can take, though, to prevent being sued, and I'll give you a few of those today. Employers in the manufacturing industry have emerged as a prime target for workplace litigation since the pandemic began. They trail only behind the healthcare industry, which is also a hotbed for litigation for obvious reasons. As always, a company's best defense, whether in manufacturing or otherwise, is a strong offense. To avoid a COVID-19 lawsuit, employers should make sure to arm their human resources team and frontline managers with knowledge about the new leave law requirements, federal, state, and local. 
they should make sure to update handbooks with respect to whistleblower and anti-retaliation policies so they cover the current legal environment. Companies should regularly monitor the guidelines being set out and revised by the CDC and OSHA with regard to COVID workplace safety and adjust their workspaces and practices as needed. As I've said before, following these regulations is a constantly moving target as we all learn more about the virus. You also need to train your employees on COVID-19 safety procedures and make sure they're followed. Providing masks isn't enough if your employees aren't wearing them. Finally, it's critically important that in the event of a layoff or a furlough, you work with a professional, like a lawyer, to make sure the selection criteria is objective, measurable, and appropriately documented. This is Nicole Hitner for your Legal Watch. Stay safe out there. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, Talk Radio 1210, WPHT. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Mandy Price this evening. And, um, you know, certainly the work that Mandy's doing is um, very timely and relevant uh, with regard to diversity, equity and inclusion. And Mandy, just before the break, I was speaking to you about my curiosity around, you know, how much attention we have to put towards systems and, and, you know, cultural things that have taken place. And how do we more importantly, I think, how do we reach the hearts of people to get them to be more open-minded and, and understand that change is necessary? Yeah. So to your point, I think we need both. Um, I, I guess I am very encouraged by the conversations around systems and policies and practices, because for so long, when we talked about race or racism, it really was around this idea of we just need to know each other better or we need to be nicer to each other or um, how do we um, get people more connected to each other? And I think that's part of it. Right. I do think people are, you know, our country is extremely segregated when it comes to uh, you know, segregation in terms of housing and, and you look at the education system and all of that. So I think all of those things need to be addressed. But I think it has to go be lo- up beyond um, being nice to each other or, or having an understanding even of your own biases. Because until people are committed to the structural changes that are needed um, and re- really changing those systems, uh, being nice to each other or, or um, you know, uh, taking a colleague to lunch or, or, like I said, even being aware of the biases you have really aren't implementing that long-term change unless we're committed to changing a lot of our systems and practices in the way traditionally businesses have just operated. Now, obviously, we have to have that mindset change in order to get leaders to understand that and to be committed to the structural change. So I think it's both. I think they go hand in hand, and we have to have both of those in order to um, see the changes that we all want to see, right? When we look at any of the pay parity reports, any of the gender equity reports, they all report decades and sometimes centuries, right? Before we are really going to see any uh, true parity with respect to these issues. And I know none of us want to wait. I believe the last report I saw for women was 202 years, if nothing changes. If we just keep at status quo and keep operating the way we are, 
it will be 202 years before women achieve uh, uh, any kind of economic parity uh, within our uh, within uh, our society. And that's just too long. So I think we have to really have those tough conversations and say, what are we going to do from a institutional equity, a foundational level, really changing our systems? Because so much of what needs to happen is as uh, completely different than the way organizations are, are currently operating. And I think so much of the conversation has been around equality as opposed to equity, right? We can't uh, work on the mindset of we, we're treating everyone the same. We really need to ensure that we're putting those equitable systems in place to ensure that all employees can thrive uh, and have the same access and opportunities within their work environment. Right. And gosh, you know, the financial... Uh, stability is such an important part of, you know, really everyone's um, success in life. And let's talk. So for the listeners, when you say systems, can you talk about the systems and what, you know, be more specific about the systems and what um, is being done and should be done? Yeah, sure. So we know that even the way a job description is put together will affect the pipeline and who applies for that position. So everyone needs to be aware of the bias that they have, the bias that's within the systems. Um, and there's lots and lots of tools that organizations to use to um, take out this bias. But what we typically see, right, even though there's no ill intent, a company will use a job description just off the shelf that they've used previously. They may know that they don't have a lot of women within their workforce, but they may not realize the part of that is because of the way their systems have been operating. Um, there's many companies that do this analysis of your job descriptions to take out the bias. We know the same time, once you even get those resumes in, there's bias built within that process that we can see that organizations, uh, individuals, I'm sorry, that have ethnic sounding names um, do not receive callbacks. The, the, there's been many, many research that has shown an applicant that has a black sounding name or an ethnic sounding name uh, with the exact same resume will uh, receive 50 percent less. You know, all of them are a little bit different, but it's dramatically less uh, callbacks or requests for interviews than applicants that have different name. Or same thing with respect to things that may show up on your resume like Muslim Students Association. So we know that we have to take out bias in those systems uh, within the talent acquisition process. That goes from where we're interviewing at, how the interviews are conducted, um, making sure there's a standardization of not only the questions asked, but the, but the rubric that we're judging candidates on. But that continues throughout every single process and practice within the organization, uh, from the performance management system all the way until uh, the way uh, uh, pay is done. So that we know that a lot of organizations base pay off of part previous pay history. So they may ask, what did you work? What did you make at your previous job? Because women and people of color are already dealing with pay parity issues, basing pay off of someone's previous pay history only perpetuates the inequities that we're seeing within our uh, within our country. So some of the things that we do from a foundational level is look at all of these processes and systems and say, for example, okay, we see you're basing pay off of previous pay history as opposed to the job at hand. 
pay should always be dependent upon the job in hand as opposed to someone's previous pay history. So that's just a little bit of an example of some of the things when I say we have to look at the way organizations are operating so -hmm. that we really get an understanding of how the systems themselves have to change in order to uh, really bring along the widespread change that's needed throughout all the organizations. Right, right. That's great. I mean, those are great examples. And I'm sure just, you know, kind of the tip of the iceberg of things that, um, you know, people don't even think about. Mandy, one of the greatest challenges when you start a company, aside from the fear and the, oh my gosh, you know, can we do this? And by the way, I should mention, um, you have a co-founder, Star Carter. Um, But one of the greatest challenges is, is raising capital, and you very successfully raised $3 million for this platform. And I know that there's always listeners in our audience who um, want to learn how to, to, to raise money and raise capital. I wonder if you can, uh, I'm always curious how, how you started. What was the first thing you did or who did you reach out to first? Yeah, so it's really challenging for um, women to raise capital and uh, even more difficult for women of color. So when you look right now, uh, roughly two, some on some years, 3% of venture capital funding goes to female founders. Uh, when you look at the, the current uh, kind of funding statistics around black women founders, uh, it's at, <clears throat> excuse me, it's at black women founders is at 0.06%. So uh, we see very, very little venture capital funding going to black women. And so we knew the hurdles that we were going to be facing. Um, And what we did was, you know, try to really ensure that we were expanding our network when it comes to reaching out to potential investors. We wanted to ensure that we were reaching out to investors that believed in the mission of what we were doing. Uh, Venture Capitals, of course, is around wanting exponential returns. And obviously, we want to grow our business and make it successful. But we we didn't want someone to be backing us just because of the financial uh, potential they saw in the business. We wanted them to understand and believe in the mission of the of the company, which was increasing inclusion and equity within the workplace. So we had lots of conversations with investors. Those conversations changed over time. You know, I have to be honest, in the beginning, it was very, very difficult because not a lot of investors um, understood the potential of what we were doing. They felt that a software helping organizations diagnose diversity, equity, inclusion issues or measuring this over time wasn't a viable business. I can remember conversations that I've had with venture capitalists, too, because just like we're talking about the the, the lack of diversity in some of the corporate environments, uh, venture capital is not a very diverse um, community. And so some of the things that we've saw this summer with the social justice movement in corporate America, we're also seeing within the VC startup ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so I've had lots of discussions with venture capitalists where, you know, I've had some folks say, you really think that women and people of color have a different experience in the workplace just because they couldn't even understand the the pain point of their issue we were trying to solve just because they didn't realize it was a a widespread issue. You know, they may have knew that um, women were leaving the workforce earlier, but, you know, there's still a lot of this kind of... um, outdated thinking of women leave the workforce because they want to have children. I I can tell you, I don't know anyone in my law school that left the workforce just because they wanted to have children. They left the workforce because they felt like their opportunities had vanished. 
because they they took time out to have children. Yes. And so and so I think being able to have that perspective and be able to see the opportunities exist is one of the reasons why so many people really champion and advocate for that diversity within the VC ecosystem, because how do we able to spot the issues and fund issues for these underrepresented communities and their pain points if we have individuals that don't even understand the issues that that those communities face. But Sue, to your point, in addition to widening our nets and ensuring that we were speaking with uh, a wide range of investors and wanting to be aligned with the investors that really understood what we were solving and uh, understood the passion and purpose behind our company, we kind of uh, made sure we read up and understood the challenges that we were going to be facing. So we know that women and uh, are asked more prevention-based questions as opposed to promotion-based questions when talking with VCs. By that, I mean uh, VCs ask them risk-based questions as far as how are you going to solve this issue with your business? How are you going to come this obstacle? And so we knew that that was what was going to be um, coming our way. And so we worked a lot on how do I answer this way question in a way to answer their question, but to turn it into a promotion-based question where we're able to talk about the possibilities with our business, the opportunities, um, the way that the business can grow and scale. And so I think that was really, really helpful because you know how it is when you're having a conversation with anyone. If it's all based off of risk or how you're going to overcome hurdles, you leave the conversation a different way than if you're talking about the opportunities. And so we knew that it was important for us to talk about our business in that way. And so uh, we did a lot of practicing, uh, ensuring that uh, we were able to, to turn those questions around. That's so interesting uh, to me, Mandy, because I think when you're a company or organization that is really um, mission driven, it is so, so important that, you know, we become passionate about what we're doing and what we're growing. And it's almost like you have to prove that it can be revenue generating, right? And not just a feel good, um, you know, company that's trying to make the world a better place. And did you come up with, you know, did you come up against people who, who were, in, you know, feeling that way? Oh, absolutely. And I think still, not only with Canaries, but I think with diversity, equity, inclusion overall, there's a lot of people that feel that it is a a charitable endeavor or a philanthropic endeavor. Um, I know people that think funding women or people of color is something that they're doing as a charitable aspect when it's like, that's not the case whatsoever. (laughs) You know, this is good business decisions. Um, Companies that have women on the board is a good business business decision. When you look at the revenue generation from women founded companies with the kind of per dollar invested, there is bigger return on those on those companies as well. So I think it's just important for individuals to understand the business aspects, uh, not only when it comes to uh, backing underrepresented founders, but also when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, some of the first hurdles that we run into when we're talking with organizations is they think that diversity, equity, inclusion is an issue for their HR team. 
Right. This is yes. a fundamental business issue. Um, it's the, the business case for diversity has been proven for decades as far as not only increasing um, uh, innovation within the organization, the financial performance, lowering employee absenteeism, as well as increasing um, not only employee engagement, but customer satisfaction from the from the clients themselves. So I think it's important that people realize that this doesn't only make good sense in terms of being good to your employees, but it makes good business sense. Yes, 100%. And, you know, I always like to ask this question when we're talking about this topic. Do you personally think that things are going to get better generation by generation. In other words, it's so clear to me that, for instance, my parents and my grandparents' generation were so, uh, you know, backward in their thinking around this topic. And what I'm seeing in millennials, you know, I have two, is that they have a totally different mindset. And and I think that some things are going to organically happen. Sue, I absolutely agree. I When we look at... Uh not only millennials, but but Gen Z, right? When they are polled and there's any kind of surveying or research done on this, we see fundamental leaps between each of the generations on, uh, a, I would say, not only awareness, right, and heightened awareness, but a demand that organizations uh, take diversity, equity, inclusion uh, issues seriously. Um, I think that a lot of the things that back in the day, people may have thought were choices. People realize are people's identities and know that we need to treat people with respect and dignity uh, based off their identities in that uh, the workplace should be fair in that we should not uh, limit people's opportunities because of their identities. So, you know, I think the understanding around uh, cisgendered and transgendered and non-binary is just at a completely different level when we think about millennials and Gen Z and their understanding around those concepts versus some generations that, you know, maybe never Never had those discussions. So I definitely think we will continue to see um, uh, greater awareness and uh, greater inclusion amongst uh, individuals, no matter what their identity is. Right. I agree with you. Um, Listen, we're going to go into our next break and uh, stay with us for our watch team. And we'll be back with Mandy Price, co-founder and CEO of Canaries. Now the women to watch military watch. Hi, I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President, Military Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. Now, it's been a tremendous celebration of Black History Month at our company, from launching the Black Experience Channel on Xfinity to continued support of the Black-owned small businesses through the Comcast Rise Investment Fund. We honor the contributions and accomplishments of the Black community to our nation and to our military service. And as we look forward to recognizing the Navy Reserve's birthday on this Wednesday, March 3rd, and the start of Women's History Month, I'd like to share a story with you. In 1942, the Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service, or the WAVES, became a division of the U.S. Navy. This Naval Reserve Force opened opportunities for women to serve in several fields, including aviation, medical professions, communications, intelligence, and science and technology. However, waves remained closed to black women. 
And it wasn't until 1944, after urging from civic, religious, and civil rights organizations, that the U.S. Navy permitted black women to join the waves. Soon after, Harriet Ida Pickens and Frances Wills graduated from the Navy Reserve Midshipman School and became the U.S. Navy's first black female officers. Pickens was the daughter of William Pickens, one of the founders of the NAACP, who encouraged her to join the waves. She would go on to lead physical fitness training at the Hunter Naval Training Station. Now, Wills, who was a social worker in civilian life, didn't have a brother to serve in the military, so she felt it was her duty to represent her family in the war effort. Wills would go on to teach naval history to incoming recruits, and then she returned to social work counseling of veterans struggling with the horrors of war. Women like Harriet Ida Pickens and Frances Wills are my heroes. Their courage to dive into so many unknowns for the greater purpose of service to others is so inspiring. So thank you, Ida, thank you, Harriet, and happy birthday to the Navy Reserve. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Now, the women to watch, PR Watch. Hi, everybody. I'm Mindy Barnett, motivational and keynote speaker and author. And today, I'm going to talk to you about the importance of following your faith. I believe everything happens for a reason. We hear that saying so much in our lives, and some of us say it to ease the blow of a setback, but may not know the real reason or life lesson we're destined to grow from. In time, the truth is always revealed. I've had my fair share of setbacks, too many to count in all honesty, but every time I've taken knocked down by life, I've picked myself up, wiped the streaming tears from my eyes, and continued to trek on. It's the only option that makes sense, and life always relays a lesson as long as we're open-minded and open-eyed to see it. Think of a recent setback which proved to be worthwhile in the long run. Maybe it opened a door to a new opportunity or closed the door to a situation you needed to end but didn't have the bandwidth to do without the universe behind you. A ship in port is safe, but that's not what ships are built for by John A. Shedd is a quote that always speaks to my soul. It did the first time I heard it and still does. We're nothing without taking chances, following our gut, and listening to the many signs the universe shares. Opportunities present themselves constantly, but it's what you do with them that matters. Do you stay in the port where you know the outcome is safe, or do you set sail and explore? You could be knocked down by waves or even capsized by a storm, but you could also reach a beautiful island full of treasures and serenity. I choose to sail whenever possible. I always sail. It's important that we always look for the opportunity. Playing it safe in life and at work will leave you unhinged in most cases, but it also won't move the meter. In order to continue to rise and climb, 
You need to look beyond the fence, keeping the danger away, but also the promise. So set sail. It will never be a mistake. For more messages on this and, and others, please check me out at MindyBarnett.com or visit me at Instagram, Mindy.Barnett. See you next time. The program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Welcome back to the show. My name is Sue Rocco, and if you missed the first hour, I'm joined this evening by Mandy Price. Mandy is the co-founder and CEO of Canaries, which is a technology platform helping companies and employees uh, collaborate around diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, Um, a really important topic today. And uh, Mandy, I I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, the company itself and really what you offer to to other businesses. And just to kind of give a an overview, um, you help companies get the data they need to diagnose and support DEI efforts by providing a self, uh, excuse me, a safe and anonymous way for employees to share their thoughts and observations. Uh, tell us how that works. You know what exactly it takes place. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, one of the things that our experience has taught us is that it's important to create a safe way for employees to. Um, provide this feedback to their employer. Um, Many things happened to me in the workplace and I never talked about them ever. I talked about them with um, my co-founder star uh, because we, we work together at the same workplace, but my employers never had an understanding of the true challenges that I was facing, the things that were happening to me. Like I, I remember in one circumstance, a one of the partners that I uh, had worked with asked me if I got into Harvard legitimately and I wouldn't dare bring that up right to someone within the organization because of my fear of what it would have an effect on my career. And so uh, we knew that it was important to uh, create feedback mechanisms where companies could get the information that they needed, but to protect those underrepresented employees. A lot of times, um, because they may be the only, right, they may be the only woman or the only LGBT or the only person of color within their workplace, uh, there is that much more resistance to providing feedback because uh, those individuals feel like that feedback will come back to them because it will be identifiable, um, the type of feedback that they're leaving. And so what we do is that we create a mechanism where these underrepresented employees can leave feedback because that feedback is going to be aggregated with other underrepresented employees within their workplace so that they can really talk 
with honesty and truth of their of their lived experiences. And so uh, even though someone may be the only person in their department or their office, usually uh, when we're able to couple and kind of amplify those experiences and also to show the company what uh, are statistical anomalies, right? Sometimes because these issues are so sensitive, when people bring them up in the workplace, their um, immediate supervisor or someone within their department may feel that they're being, um, uh, you know, uh, called racist or sexist or these other things. And so they immediately go into a defensive mode. Mm -hmm. And so what we try to do is show the organizations um, kind of how widespread these issues are without throughout their system help them again understand these from a systems-based approach, but also be really, really tactical in putting together a DEI strategy that really addresses the issues that are existing within the workplace. A lot of times what we see is that organizations uh, may be well-intentioned, but they will have kind of a a cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all approach. So maybe they'll have someone come in and do unconscious bias training. That really doesn't affect the issues that their employees may be dealing with. Um, Employees in one department or geographic location may have something completely different that they're struggling with or be the real impediments uh, to to their success than employees in another office. So what we try to do is ensure that we're using data, but also the employee feedback to drive all of our DEI strategy. And to really ensure that we're elevating diversity, equity, inclusion with every other business priority. So what we do is we do the consistent monitoring and tracking, just like we would do with with any other business unit. Um, I always talk about how diversity, equity, inclusion is the only group where people feel that if we've done something once, we, we're, we've we succeeded. Um, that doesn't happen in sales and finance, uh, marketing. Everyone else knows that there needs to be continuous measurement and tracking. Um, to ensure that we're meeting the goals that the organization set. And so that's what our software and our systems and our team does is help organizations um, have those processes where not only do we help them diagnose from a systemic and institutional basis the things that may be going on within their organization, but also creating those long-term feedback loops and mechanisms so their employees can have a safe way to really drive their DEI strategy. Mandy, can you talk about the growth of the company and who are your clients and how quickly were you able to retain companies and organizations to sign on? Yeah, so I can talk about some of the clients that um, have publicly appeared, right, and talked about using Canaries. Um, we don't uh, disclose our client list without the consent of our, of our clients, but we've worked with groups like Neiman Marcus and Young Brands, Dallas Mavericks. They've all uh, publicly talked about their work with us. Um, but I think when we talk about our clients, our clients are organizations that are deeply committed to this work and know that this work requires a long-term strategy and engagement from their employees. So uh, we're able to work with organizations of all different kind of industry groups and uh, backgrounds. But, uh, you know, like most companies, uh, it took us time to grow, right? We didn't wake up. Uh, our company started in, in April of 2018 and have a, a list of clients. It took us time to uh, not only build out our technology and test our technology, but I think, uh, you know, as we think of the timing of everything that's gone on, I think the heightened awareness that organizations have had as well in the sense of 
realizing that they have to approach diversity, equity, inclusion, not just from a marketing strategy, right, which is what we've seen in the past or not from kind of some of the performative efforts that we've seen where an organization may be celebrating Black History Month or Pride Month, but not really doing anything in the sense of understanding from a systems-based perspective um, how to really elevate and facilitate inclusion and equity within their organization. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of um, just checking of the box, right? Yep. Yeah. And, you know, putting out pretty pictures and, and quotes and slogans and all of that. Um, yeah, I think that's what's so unique about Canaries and what you're doing. It's so actionable. And I I have a couple questions as you were talking. I was thinking about the technology aspect of it. You know, you're an attorney, Um and and you you have this desire really to change something that's been systemically you know not a good thing for people. Were you um, you know were you afraid of the technology part of it? How did you learn that? How did you access it? And and then be able to speak so articulately about it. You know, a lot of times I think, especially with a technology product, there's this fear of if I don't have a technology background, I can't, I'm not adept at at building this. Right. Most, even if you're a tech founder, uh, you you know, you may in that kind of initial phases of the MVP and kind of the prototype of the company create that. But after that, you're not, you're not coding, you know, Steve Jobs wasn't coding every day at Apple, you know, so I think it's a matter of building a team around you. And so we knew from the beginning that we needed to have an amazing team. So uh, we were really fortunate to have a great VP of engineering, great product leads to help us build out uh, the technology. But one of the things I think is important is that as a, as a CEO and as a, as a business uh, leader, you got to have a lot of skill sets. So, you know, when I hear people say they're afraid because they don't have the technology background, I say, you know, I didn't have the technology background, but I didn't have the marketing background, the finance background, the, you know, there's so many backgrounds that you have (laughs) to learn. And so the technology piece is just one, one piece of the puzzle. And I think that's one of the the great things about being an entrepreneur is you love so, you you learn so much, and so uh, there's so many things that we've had to learn in order to have our business successful. Um, and as our business has continued to grow, we've been able to bring on additional team members that have those skill sets and specialties. But we uh, we know that we will continue to not only need to learn, but to, to build out that 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 team. You know, you mentioned your husband is one of your partners, and I think that's probably a big part of your story because that can either work really, really well or that can be, you know, challenging. So um, what does he do for Canaries and how do you make that work being so closely connected um, professionally and personally? Yeah, so he uh, is oversees the product. So he's our chief product officer um, and uh, it's been really worked really well for us. You know, obviously there were some challenges that we had the first few years, um, like most entrepreneurs, right? You, you put your savings in the company and you don't take a salary for a long time. So right. as a family, that was difficult, but in the sense of having a, um, 
a, a spouse and a partner that uh, completely supports the work you're doing. A lot of times entrepreneurs, they're so committed and so passionate about what they're doing, but they may not have that same support from their family. And so they may run into issues where they're having a lot of disagreements and things like that um, because their family doesn't understand the amount of time and money that they're putting into the business where we didn't have that situation. Um, you know, my, my husband and I were building this company together. And so, um, he understood the reason why certain money was being put into the business, why certain money wasn't being put into our checking account. Um, (laughs) and why, uh, we were spending so much time, right? Because we both believe so, so, so fully in, in what we're creating. And so I think in that sense, it's been really, really helpful. It also going into the pandemic, right? We started building this together before the pandemic. So, you know, uh, when we were in those close quarters at home and being around each other all the time, we, we already were used to that. (laughs) We were already (laughs) used to to working with each other and being around each other a, a lot. So I think it's been really, really helpful. And, um, I'm very fortunate to to have him uh, working alongside me and and us working together to build this company. Yeah, that's great. Um, Listen, we're going to go into our last break. Stay with us for our watch team, and I'll be back with Mandy Price. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso of Pathways Consulting Group. Because my daughter doesn't itemize her deductions, doesn't have children or major deductible expenses, e-filing her taxes is perfect. A few years ago, we decided to try e-filing her taxes through one of the major online tax preparation firms. The first year we did it, it was a little challenging. But fast forward to this year, the process to file her taxes online took us no time at all. There are many advantages to e-filing if you're in my daughter's situation. That's why last year, over 126 million U.S. tax filers e-filed their own tax returns, and over 85 million taxpayers received their tax refund via direct deposit right from the IRS into their bank accounts. So if you are going to do e-file, I highly recommend that if you can, set up a bank account prior to starting the e-file process. When filing online, it's easy to avoid human error and mistakes because much of the software used automatically populates much of the information you typically would enter in manually. Data shows that e-file tax returns are more accurate than paper returns. Also, when you e-file, most U.S. states allow taxpayers to e-file their federal and state tax returns simultaneously. That's a huge time saver. Even if you think you owe money, you can still use online filing. If you do have itemized deductions or have more complex returns that are prepared by a professional tax services firm, find out if that firm uses e-file. This could save you considerable money and provide a faster return. Things to be cautious about? Even though the IRS has really stepped up its game in safeguarding taxpayers' personal financial data, hackers are still on the prowl. So ensure that you investigate the e-file agency you choose thoroughly and look for reviews and ratings about the agency. The deadline to e-file is midnight, April 15th. If you'd like more information on this topic, email me at mary at pathwayscg.com. 
Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. Now, the women to watch. Marketing Watch. When the world locked down in March, millions of fitness gurus and regular gym goers were forced to adjust their workout routines to an at-home workout experience. From group fitness classes with peers to lifting weights at the local gym before the daily commute, exercise is often a bright spot in many people's daily routine. Hi, I'm Lynn Falconio, Chief Marketing Officer of Publicis Health for Women to Watch Marketing Watch. And like many of you, I've had to shift my fitness routine because of COVID-19. While at-home fitness wasn't a new concept, it quickly shifted from being one option for a good sweat session to the only option. In March, we saw a ripple effect of fitness giants pivoting to online workouts. Many used social media for live streaming. Others offered workouts on apps for users to get fit in their own time. With very few reasons to be outside of our homes, many have also made walking or biking outdoors a priority. In my daily routine, I always take a socially distanced stroll through Central Park to get my fill of exercise. Now, with exercise going to the streets and people working out in their living rooms, traditional gyms face challenges in incentivizing the eventual return to gym. Assuming the safety and cleanliness of communal weight rooms, fitness studios, and shared spaces has been quite the hurdle. Even so, some gyms have reopened, but only at 25 to 50% capacity. As we imagine a post-pandemic future, some people will inevitably rush back to the local gym. But for others, the at-home workout has become a preference. Like many other habitual changes we've seen due to the global pandemic, it's safe to say the virtual fitness experience will be here to stay. Until next time, I'm Lynn Falconio for Women to Watch Marketing Watch. Now, more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back to the show. I'm speaking to Mandy Price this evening, the co-founder and CEO of Canaries. Um, Mandy, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your your partner, Star Carter. And you, you guys were named two of Entrepreneur Magazine's top 100 most powerful women of 2020. I wanted to ask you, how do you believe um, you can benefit from those kind of recognitions? So I think any company that's starting out, right, it's a matter of gaining awareness of what you're doing and the work you're doing. And uh, so I think that, you know, really helps to amplify what we're doing at Canaries. And then obviously, you know, one of the challenges that I've, I've talked about a little bit today with you is sometimes people struggle with um, really understanding these issues. And so I think being able to have entrepreneur champion the work that we're doing and talking about the impact of the work is really, really helpful. 
Um, something else I wanted to talk to you about was was things that you're involved in outside of Canaries. And I know you've sat on multiple boards throughout your career. Um, it looked to me like you're still serving on the board of the Texas Association for the Protection of Children. Um, and I had two questions around that. One, you know, why is that important to you? Why is that a cause that's near and dear to your heart? And what have you learned working with that particular organization? Yeah, so um, my term actually just ended with Text for Text, but I okay. did serve on the board for um, for many years and most recently was the secretary. Um, but that organization um, it was very dear to my heart uh, because I believe it's all of our duty to really advocate and speak up for children and others that can't speak up for themselves. And so a lot of the work that Text for Text does is around um, really bringing awareness uh, to prevention programs. A lot of times when we are looking at any kind of child protection initiatives, we're really coming in once the abuse has already happened. And so how do we um, put in programs, for example, one of their things is a nurse family partnership where they start working with moms while they're pregnant to help ensure that they understand um, mechanisms that they can do, resources that are available, um, understanding um, uh, kind of uh, how to uh, de-escalate certain situations, right, uh, in terms of stress. And so just equipping moms to ensure that they have those tools and resources that they need. And so um, I think when you think about the work that we're doing with Canaries, which is about speaking up for folks and ensuring people have a voice, I think it's very in line to some of the work that Text Protects does as well in the sense of ensuring that that uh, we're speaking up for those kids that don't have a voice. Um, one of the organizations that I was very involved with, in addition to Tax Protects uh, for many years, was also Child Care Group, which is an organization that helps uh, pull together uh, funding around uh, uh, childhood education centers. And so they do a lot of work with Head Start and Early Head Start and, and serve of some of those uh, centers and, 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 and run those centers. But they also run many other centers um, and ensure that, again, we are making sure that children have those early education systems because we know that a lot of the child development and brain development happens within the first four years of life. So ensuring that we are equipping and, and providing our kids with the tools they need to succeed. So I've done a lot of, of work on nonprofit boards in addition to Text Protects and Child Care Group. Uh, did a lot of work with the um, uh, 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 legal aid as well. So I was on the legal aid of Northwest Texas board for many years as well, um, where uh, provide legal aid services for North and West Texas. So uh, again, I think this is along the lines of we are the change that we see in our community. Um, there's there's no magical heroes on any of these boards. It's people that are committed to their society and knowing that we all have to be involved to, to have the change that's needed. You know, I should mention you're, you're a mom yourself. You have two children. And I know they're, you know, on the young side, but tell me, tell me about them. And what kind of conversations do you have with them around the work that you're doing? Yeah, so I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, a six-year-old is my son and a four-year-old daughter. Um, I have to tell you that I don't think that they really even know what I do. 
probably not at six and four. <laughs> you know, um, right. my, my son, um, you know, for I remember when he graduated from pre-K, they, they had all the students write, uh, what does mommy and daddy do? And uh, their description was they work on the computer. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I think he has no idea. He does know that I used to be a lawyer, but he, he doesn't know what lawyers do either. Right. Uh, except for, he says, goes to court. And I say, well, mommy never went to court. So that just confuses him even more. But I can't, <laughs> I can't tell you that they have started to have the awareness around race, um, especially given everything that's going on this summer. So, um, you know, we have struggled, I think, like many parents do on how to best introduce these subjects because we know we can't not introduce them. Right. I I think sometimes the earlier, the better. Right. Yeah. Right. I think for so many, the understanding was, well, you know, we want our children to be colorblind or not to see race. Well, we know that that's just not practical. Right. People understand differences when they're looking at someone and in the attributes that are different. And so we, we really struggled on how do we introduce these concepts in an appropriate manner. And so there's all kinds of books. So I encourage people to, 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 to pick those up because those have helped us on our journey. And I have to tell you, you know, that it was very difficult for me as a mom hearing my child um, struggle with some, some, some concepts and I didn't want to lie to him. So, so, so let me give you an example. Um, with everything that was going on with the death of Mr. George Floyd, um, we didn't know how to explain that to them, right? Understanding right. race is different than how do I explain what he, and, you know, he didn't see the video, but he could see the protests. He could see people upset. He could see all the different things that were happening. We we're just watching news coverage. And he came to me and he said, because I explained to him, I said, well, they're upset because this person was treated bad because they were, they were black and, uh, he was killed by the police. And so he said, well, mommy, what, what if the police hurt me? And this is where, you know, kind of going back to our conversation where unfortunately black parents have to have conversations with their children, um, much earlier maybe than they want. But as a mom, I felt that it was, um, not equipping him correctly and to have the right survival skills to tell him that would never happen to him because it could. And, and so he's I, asking the question, right? Correct, so he, correct. Yeah, he's asking. And so I couldn't tell him, no, that will never happen to you or you act this way or you do this and it won't happen because there's nothing he can do to ensure that that won't happen to him. So um, it's it's very difficult, um, but this is the reason why it's so important that we all have these conversations with our children. They mm-hmm. all understand uh, these issues. And, you know, um, I think my son, even though I wasn't in, pl- in planning to bring some of these subjects up to him because he was five at that point, at that at that time. Um, I think it's important that we have those conversations and he understands that sometimes, you know, people do bad things and they do bad things um, because of people's identities, right? Yeah. After yeah. that, we've started to have, because he goes to a Jewish school as well, conversations around um, the Holocaust and, and the treatment of, of, of Jewish individuals. So um, it, it's a challenge. Parents have a difficult task at hand, but um, I know the way is not to ignore the issues or to act like they don't exist. 
Right. I, I, you know, being a mother myself, I, I almost, I, I can remember when they were little feeling angry that I had to tell them that there were bad people in the world. But I, I think you're so right about, you know, you, you have to tell the truth. It just, the conversations always have to be around the truth and that's how they will best be prepared, um, to deal with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Completely agree. Mandy, tell me when you think about your life at, to this point and your career, um, what are you most proud of? I think um, when I think of what I'm most proud of is the work we're doing at Canaries. Um, the the structural changes that we are making, the partners that we've committed to, right, the companies that that are working with us to really make changes in the workplace. You know, uh, Sue, I can't tell you how many times we've started to work with companies and I get messages on my LinkedIn from employees that I've never worked with or met, but they know that their company's working with Canaries and they message me about how hopeful they feel. I've got a message from employees that have worked somewhere for 20 years and say, I never felt like I belonged or that my company cared about these issues. And now that we're working with you all, I finally feel like I have a voice. Wow. And so having those messages, hearing people be impacted by work is the thing that is the biggest accomplishment and fulfillment and success metric that I think we could have. And how about um, personally? So um, I think it's important on this show, especially that we're always talking honestly about, you know, what our challenges have been as women, as young girls. Um, and, And I always love sharing how women like you who have achieved a certain level of success have overcome something in their life that that's been difficult. And um, I wonder if there's something that that you can share on a personal level that you feel proud of or, or even something that's still, you know, a challenge for you today. So I think the pandemic, right, has been extremely challenging for parents. Um, You know, during the, you know, March of last year, uh, up until September, my kids were at home with us. They were at home every day. And so trying to manage a company of 20 employees uh, alongside of uh, being a mom and feeling like I'm doing a good job at both was was really hard. Um, I still don't always feel like I'm doing a good job at both. Yeah. But I think, um, you know, what I've learned is to try to give myself a little grace to Mm -hmm. know that um, I'm not going to be perfect at everything all the time. But I think feeling um, like I have some space for myself over the past year has been has been really, really difficult. Um, And I know it's a challenge that a lot of parents are currently dealing with. I I I agree with you. And I think, you know, women in particular are are harder on themselves um, than men are just in um, wanting to be doing everything right all the time, every day, all day long. Right. As as a mother, as a wife um, uh, running a company, my gosh. And the pandemic in particular has it's it's something we've never, ever, ever faced before. So the anxiety, I think, has been very high. How have you been managing that? What do you do, you know, to kind of keep yourself 
grounded. So um, I've realized that even though, right, my kids may want to be with me every single second, that it's okay for me to have some time by myself. So I, uh, on the weekends, I try to take some time uh, to myself, uh, have a bubble bath, read a book. Um, I I have to tell you, Sue, I can hear them knocking on the door of the bathroom, (laughs) yelling to get in. Um, But I say... That's not very relaxing. (laughs) (laughs) But I say, it's okay, right? I don't have to be with them every second because they're at the age where they're so young, right? Um, Where... They, they literally want to go with me to the bathroom, you know, yeah. oh, my yeah. four year old yeah. where I'm like, it's OK. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can have some time away from them. And I think it's been really challenging because with the pandemic, they don't have other outlets or friends houses that they can go to. Right. Yes. Or sports. Oh, gosh. So so <clears throat> it's, it's a challenge. Yeah. But listen, you've been doing a great job as a mom and and an entrepreneur. Um, And I thank you so much for, for coming on the show this evening. It was a really great conversation. Thank you, Sue. Now the women to watch. Nonprofit Watch. Good evening, women to watch listeners. I'm Dr. Nakia Owens, Managing Director of Financial Empowerment at United Way of Greater Philadelphia in Southern New Jersey. At United Way, we believe in second chances or giving people the opportunity to change their lives for the better. And in that spirit, we invest in programming and initiatives that provide the formerly incarcerated, known as returning citizens, the opportunity to participate in workforce training programs and placement programs that put them back to work and connects them to the resources to become productive citizens within their communities, but more importantly, to their children and families. Children are oftentimes adversely impacted when experiencing the effects of an incarcerated parent. And the reality is approximately 25,000 plus returning citizens come back into Philadelphia every year. And one out of every classroom of 25 children has an incarcerated parent, and upwards of 80% of incarcerated women are mothers. So at United Way, we want to ensure that we are rebuilding families through our efforts and providing opportunities for these returning citizens to become gainfully employed and acquire housing stability to be best positioned to care for themselves, their children, as well as be productive community members. If you need more information on how we can serve yourself or someone you know who may have been formerly incarcerated, please visit our website at www.unitedforimpact.org or call our helpline 211. And until next time, I'm Dr. Owens, your nonprofit watch. Hey, Sue Rocco here, host of Women to Watch. Are you a fan of the show? If so, be sure to sign up for our podcast at womentowatch.net so you never miss a show and can listen on your own time. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Now, Women on the Fly. Hi, Sue Rocco here with Mandy Price for our Women on the Fly. So, Mandy, tell me, how do you start your day? Um, I unfortunately start my day looking at my emails. Before coffee? Yeah. I don't drink coffee. Oh, wow. What is your mantra for stressful moments? 
this too shall pass. Are you a planner or more spontaneous? I'm a planner. Where are you typically when inspiration strikes? My inspiration usually comes at around two to three in the morning. I wake up and actually have a bed, a, a notepad next to me um, because I'm thinking about ideas in the middle of the night. You know, I always wonder where those messages are coming from. <laughs> I get them too. Um, a place you've traveled to, you'd love to go back. The Maldives. Mm. How do you unwind? I nowadays, I, I would say before the pandemic, going out <laughs> to eat and having uh, you know a nice dinner and glass of wine with my husband. Now it's Netflix, Netflix yeah. with my <laughs> husband and kids, and bubble baths. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what your definition of feminism is. Or, you know, where where you see this movement around women's empowerment today? Yeah, you know, when I think of feminism, you know, there's a traditional definition. And, you know, my husband loves to say he's a feminist. But he's right, right? We're Everyone's a feminist because it's the idea of women being able to have the same access and opportunities as anyone else. And being able to choose the life that they want to live. Yeah. And so uh, when I think of feminism, that, that's really what comes to mind for me. There you go. Tell me what are three words that describe you? Tenacious, gritty, and I would say, huh, this is another one I have to think about a little bit. <laughs> I can think of a lot of words for you. <laughs> Smart, determined, beautiful, um, looking to make the world a better place. But I know that's more than one word. Um, Yeah. So I'm going to go with tenacious, determined, and uh, motivated. Perfect. Determined and motivated, I know are similar, but. Okay. (laughs) And the last question is, how do you end your day? So I typically end my day with reading to my kids and uh, helping them prepare for bed every night. So um, nighttime really is is, is time with uh, our family. Great. Thanks, Mandy. Thank you. Coming up next is our Coach's Corner podcast, which is a shorter version of our weekly show and can be heard wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm BJ Gray with this week's Coach's Corner. What is the difference between mental fitness and resilience? A lot of people have been asking me this question lately because I teach a mental fitness boot camp that is supposed to help you build resilience. And they say, what's the difference? Well, the difference is this. Mental fitness requires self-responsibility. It requires a deeper level of self-awareness, emotional control, and realizing that all your behavior comes from how you think what you believe, and the stories you tell yourself, not what others say or what others do. And it's accepting that life normally consists of a 50-50 concept that I like to use as the base level for life. This 50% good, 50% challenging life that I think is how we all live our life every day, even though we want our, our life to be always happy, always perfect, always good, that's not realistic. So when we accept that life is 50-50, 
that is being mentally fit because now you're level setting your expectations that you don't need to be happy all the time and you don't need things to be perfect. And then that is what mental fitness requires. But resilience requires techniques and tools and strategies. You have to have a mindset strategy like thought management um, that will help you become more resilient. You have to expect negative circumstances to happen. You have to adopt a philosophy to be anti-fragile. And I like to use stoicism as my philosophy. And you have to have self-discipline. You need to be as strong as you can, environment management, time management, energy management, in order to be resilient. So the difference between mental fitness, which is more about self-responsibility, and resilience, which is about having tools and strategies to bounce back when there's difficult situations or crisis that occurs are different things. So if you're curious about building mental fitness and building resilience, get in touch and check out my new online bootcamp course that will deliver both of those. Thanks for listening to this edition of Coach's Corner. Connect with me directly on LinkedIn or at bjgray.com. Until next time, I'm BJ from Coach's Corner. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Stay tuned next week for my interview with award-winning author J.J. Geronimo. Have a great week, everyone, and stay safe. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. Announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHD or its management. Today's program has been pre recorded. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.